your word. Um, thank you that it really challenges us. And um, Lord, thank you that it's actually can be difficult. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we look at these vivid pictures, uh, that you would speak to us by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we never covered this verse, but right at the start of Revelation, um, it says this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And so, those of you who have done readings, you're blessed. Uh, and blessed are those who hear it. For those of you who have heard it read, you're blessed. Uh, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Um, and that's what we're looking at, is um, <clears throat> when we're looking at the book of Revelation, if you're new with us today, we've been going through this series and trying to understand what's going on. And as we look at it, we're trying to understand the times that we live in now and the time that's approaching when Jesus will come back one day. So that's what we've been looking at. Um, but I want to start by uh, talking about Space Mountain, because I feel like that's important. Um, the last time that I was at Disney, it was Disney World. I've never been to Disneyland. Don't hate me. It was closed. Um, and, uh, but the last time I was there, uh, we went on Space Mountain. And uh, you guys know, is it, you guys have been on Space Mountain. You know how it works, right? Like you're in the dark. You're inside a building and it's dark. But there's lights that kind of do things as you go around. But it's pretty much dark and you have no idea what's going on. Uh, we were going up one of the little like, you know, tracks that pulls you out, making the tick, 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 tick noise. And all of a sudden we stopped and we were stuck. And they flip the lights on, which totally ruins the whole thing. Completely ruins the whole thing because you, you can look around and you're like, well, I'm just in a warehouse. And if you look at the roller coaster and how it's laid out, uh, did anyone ever go to like the, the town fair and they had that little roller coaster that children rode on that looked like a dragon? If you look at Space Mountain on the inside, it looks just like that. There's no loops. There's no, it just kind of winds around and does some pretty lame things. But the, you got to understand the magic of Disney because when... When the lights are off, it seems dangerous because you'll be headed straight for a light and, and it looks like you're going to hit it, but then all of a sudden it drops down. Or you'll go through like a tube of lights that make it look like you're going twice as fast as you were a second before. And so with all the lights on, you actually got to see the magic. Um, but if I'm being honest, it was actually kind of a letdown because it really was a lame looking roller coaster. But as we've gone through this book of Revelation, it's somewhat like looking at the world with the lights on. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be like, flip the lights on, and then you can understand the unseen spiritual reality that's going on in the world that we live in. Uh, only instead of it being a letdown, like going in Space Mountain in the dark, it's, it's actually it's the complete opposite. And what we see with the lights flipped on as we look at Revelation is far more magnificent, far more glorious than you could ever imagine. And this next section that we're looking at, uh, it's difficult. It's four chapters. Um, and we're really only going to skim across the top, but it, it's very difficult. It's got extremely vivid language. It does that thing that Revelation likes to do. It circles back on itself a number of times and says the same thing it said just before, but from a different angle. Um, but vivid and strange and difficult as it is, it's actually here to help us live out today, to live in the world that we live in today. Um, because what the text shows us is this. If you take a step back and look at it with the lights on, is that there are influences on our lives that are so strong and powerful, and yet at the same time so subtle, that we have no idea they're actually shaping and forming us into something. But they are. But today we're far more influenced than we, we even dare to believe. Our, our influences are 
embedded in and emerge from the culture that we live in and that we ingest them casually and subtly without even noticing it. But these four chapters are here to show us not only what's behind those influences, but how to actually overcome them with power and truth. Uh, because we're, what we're getting a look at today in the first half of these verses is, uh, you, it was there, Satan, the devil, he's in there. And that's what we're looking at is his strategy to overpower and deceive the world. And that comes across pretty powerfully and pretty vividly. But what shines even more brightly is the second half, which is Jesus' strategy to empower and to enlighten. Um, So let's take a look at this. And as we've done each week, let's just get the lay of the land. So remember that Revelation is written to encourage all churches for all time, which means even though this is written about 2,000 years ago, it's written for us today. Um, And it's meant to help us endure through trial, through persecution, through all kinds of circumstances. And it takes place along this Timeline. So there on your left, you have the cross. That's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then on your right side, you have Jesus returning with a crown on and glory. And everything that happens in between that is now. That's the world that we live in now. Um, and what the middle of the book is doing is explaining from four different camera angles the times that we're living in right now. So you'll recognize that. There's the four seals that we've talked about. Uh, there's the four trumpets. And today we're looking at the four signs. And then next week we'll look at the four bowls. Um, And the point is, all of these are sort of happening uh, now, and what Revelation is doing is just looking at them from different camera angles. And so today, um, we're looking at it from camera three, which is the third set of seven things, and what we have are seven signs. So I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot flyover of all of chapters 12 to 15, and then we're going to kind of look at the drama of it, and then we're going to do some implications. So uh, the seven signs that happen in 12 to 15, they actually, they have to do with the past, the present and the future. So here they are. Um, good luck with that. Um, so that's what's going on. If that helps you, great. If not, you can ignore it. Uh, but chapter 12 covers um, the past. And there are two signs that happen in the past. Uh, first is a radiantly beautiful pregnant woman who's about to give birth. That's the first sign. And then the second one is of an enormous scary red dragon with seven heads and ten horns wearing seven crowns one on each of his seven heads. Like I said, vivid and dramatic, okay? These are all pictures. Uh, We're going to dig into that in a minute. And then it moves to the present in chapters 13 and 14. And there are three signs that take place in the present. Uh, In other words, these three signs, they're actually happening now. These are things that are going on right now. Um, And you'll find out in a minute or two that one of them is is happening precisely in this moment right now. Uh, How fun is that? How meta? Um, There are three signs in the present. So the first one is two big scary beasts. One is a sea monster that comes up out of the sea. The other is, uh, comes up out of the earth. And then the second sign is there's a lamb that's leading worship in heaven. And the third sign is three preaching angels. Again, really vivid stuff. Uh, And more on that in a minute. And then there's the future. Uh, And those are in chapters 14 and 15. And there's two signs that happen in the future. So the first is a great harvest. uh, And then second are seven angels given seven bulls. So that's the big picture. Two signs in the past, three in the present, two in the future. Um, You don't need to remember that, but it just kind of helps give you some context for what we're looking at. Um, And the first two signs in the past, they're there to show us two things. First, that Jesus Christ was born into the world. And when he was, it set off a great battle where Satan was defeated and kicked out of heaven. The second second set of three signs 
are taking place right now, and they function like a call to endure, a call to overcome. And then the third set of those two signs is what will happen in the future. And it reveals the final destiny of those who accept Christ and of those who reject him. So there you go. That's the overview. And what I want to do for the rest of our times is two things. So I'm going to walk us through, it's really dramatic, these four chapters. I'm going to walk us through the drama of it. I'm going to try and tell you the tale, as it were, Um, because it is dramatic. And then secondly, I want to leave us with just two implications for the present, uh, for why it matters today. So first, let's look at the drama. Um, And to be honest, you know, I know some of you like to take notes. You might actually just want to sit back and listen to this because it is great. Um, I don't know if I'm going to tell it great, but it's great. Okay, so you might just want to sit back and listen. So uh, let's look first at the drama of the past. And the first sign is the radiant pregnant woman. Now, here's what's great about this. This is a Christmas story. Did you notice that? It's a Christmas story. Uh, It does feel about as odd a Christmas story as it feels watching Buddy the Elf in August. Or perhaps, I know there are some of you, because we've had this argument, who argue that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. And so for you, it feels like watching Die Hard on Christmas Eve. Uh, But it it just is a Christmas movie. So, you know, like our text, it's certainly not a conventional one, but that's a Christmas movie. This is a Christmas story. Uh, But told from a really unusual angle. Look again at how it starts, chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. It doesn't quite read like Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. You know this. We've heard this read in church before. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Like, it's really quaint and slow-moving if you read through Matthew or you read through Luke. Um, But Revelation 12, no, 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 it's nothing like that. It's fast-paced. It's on a grand scale, uh, grander than you can imagine. And, of course, this is a vision, but we're talking about a woman. Get this, the woman wearing the sun. And she's standing on the moon, and she's wearing a crown of 12 stars, and she's crying out in pain as she's about to give birth. And so this sign, it's meant to grab your attention. It's meant to to wake you up from sleep. And what we're talking about here is actually the birth of Jesus Christ, the moment where God the Son, who has himself dwelt in unapproachable light, wrapped in the Son himself as one of the divine trinity for all eternity, one who existed before time itself, is now born as a humble baby. And rather than seeing it from Matthew's perspective of the quaint nativity scene with a baby lying in a manger and no cattle lowing, however the song goes, it's a thrilling telling of the very same event but from heaven's point of view. And from heaven's point of view, this is no ordinary birth. And so, Merry Christmas. Because the woman wearing the sun, standing on the moon, and wearing a crown of 12 stars is about to give birth to a son. At least that's what you expect the very next verse to be. But remember, this is all drama. The camera cuts quickly to another scene. This last week I watched uh, an Avengers film. I think it was Ultron, but to be honest, they're all the same. Um, And the thing with an Avengers movie is the fight scenes, you're constantly jumping from one character to another. So you're like... You're with Thor, and then you're with Iron Man, and then you're with Captain America, and then you're with someone else, and it just constantly moves back. And so the camera just constantly cuts 
back and forth, it's kind of hard to keep up with who is where and who's fighting against you. Well, this whole section of Revelation, it moves like an Avengers fight scene. So quick camera jumps from one thing to the next. And so at the end of verse two, we're expecting this radiant woman from the first sign to give birth to a son. But then very quickly, the first sign is interrupted with a second sign in verse three. And this is where you meet the enormous red dragon. So this is sign number two. Verse three, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Again, this is vivid language meant to communicate something. And in verse four, we actually learn that he's poised at the ready to devour the son born to the radiant pregnant woman at the very moment of his birth. In other words, the birth of Jesus Christ has set off Satan who wants nothing more than to destroy Jesus as he comes into the world. Now, we actually know this moment in history as the moment that Caesar Augustus commanded every newborn male to be killed. You remember that story? But from heaven's perspective, it was the enormous red dragon who was behind the command from Caesar. You see how this works? We're looking at it from heaven's perspective. So it looks different, but it's the same thing. It's the same story that we already know. Now, verse five is, get this, verse five is the entire birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ summed up in a few short words. And then the rest of chapter 12 is a telling and retelling from another perspective of the war in heaven between Michael the archangel and Satan. And as fun as it would be to dig into all of that, there's, we have a lot more ground to cover. So for now, suffice it to say, Satan lost. He lost that battle, and what it says is he was cast down to earth, and there's a victory song sung in heaven, and that's found in verses 10 to 12. I'm just going to read you verse 12, because that leads us from the past, what we've been looking at, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the, uh, Satan, the dragon, trying to kill him. Uh, leads us from the past to the present. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. They sang this song in heaven. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. In other words, Satan has been defeated in heaven, and now he's come down to earth, filled with fury, and his, his goal we find in verse 17 is actually to wage war against the church. He wants to destroy the church. And that then leads us to the drama of the present. And so now come into the present, come into the time that we're living in. And sign number three is two beasts. And so in order to wage war against the church, Satan enlists some help. And that's our next sign. Uh, the, The first of the three signs in the present. So he enlists the help of the two beasts. And one comes up out of the sea, And the other comes up from out of the earth. Now notice they're both coming up from out of something. Um, And at first they sound terrifying. They sound really terrifying at first. Uh, You know, sea monsters are the most terrifying thing on the planet. And they exist. Um, Years ago when we were, we used to live on the beach in, in North County, San Diego. And I was always terrified to go in the water because of the sea monsters. And then about a week, literally a week after we moved away, I saw a news article of a bunch of people standing on the beach outside the house that we used to live in holding an oarfish. Do you know what an oarfish is? Look it up. It's disgusting and terrifying and it will eat you. 
It was about 10 or 12 feet long, and it washed up on the beach outside of our old house. So sea monsters are real. Um, But this one also sounds terrifying. But if you pause and think about how they're described, you realize they're they're more like a patchwork of leftover parts. Uh, To stick with our Christmas theme, they're more like something from the island of misfit toys. The sea monster, it says, is part leopard, part bear, part lion. Like it's just Satan's grabbed all the leftover parts and put them together. And then the land beast is described as some sort of a clumsy counterfeit lamb. In other words, he's the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. And the sea monster, what he does is he attempts to use authority and powerful speeches and war to gain as much attention and to overpower the people of the earth as possible. Uh, Here's verse 5 of chapter 13. This is the sea monster. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And so the sea monster is characterized by the ability to overpower. And the clumsy counterfeit land beast, he uses all his power to get the people of the earth to worship the first beast and the dragon. Uh, Look at verse 14 of chapter 13. Because of the signs it was given, uh, because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast. And so the land monster is characterized by the power to deceive. Now, again, these are extremely vivid pictures of what is happening spiritually behind the scenes. So please don't go away from here picturing an actual sea monster taking political office, like some sort of bad sci-fi or an actual clumsy counterfeit land taking over social media with millions of followers. Don't go away picturing that. Uh, This, by the way, this is where the mark of the beast and the number 666 down in verse 17 and 18 comes in. I know you're wondering about that. When is he gonna talk about the mark of the beast and 666? Well, here it is. And it's way more simple than you ever thought. All that same, when it says 666, it says it's the number of a man. And all that's really saying is, Keep your eye out for how human beings seek to overpower and deceive. That's the beasts at work. They do it in the background through human beings. Keep your eye out for how and where humans carry out these types of actions, and you'll see plain as day the work of the two beasts in our time. Look for those who overpower, look for those who deceive. So these are vivid spiritual pictures of the kinds of things that happen on earth. And this might be an overcharacterization, but I'm going to try and ground this in history for you just so you have some frame of reference for how this works. So maybe it's not an overcharacterization. Maybe it is. You can complain to me later if you think it is. But think of Hitler and uh, Goebbels. Hitler, the authoritarian fascist, is characterized by what? Powerful speeches and his ability to overpower his enemies by both politics and war. 
and Joseph Goebbels, the filmmaker turned Nazi propagandist deceiving people to essentially worship Hitler. There it is. There's the beast at work. Hitler and Goebbels, they themselves aren't the beast, but that's the work of the beast. It's, he says this is the work of men. So again, not to overcharacterize, but that's a real-life example of the kinds of things described in Revelation 13. Uh, okay, more on that when we get to the implications at the end. But for now, the drama marches on, and the next sign is the sign of the Lamb leading worship in heaven. So we've looked at Satan's strategy, and now let's look at Jesus' strategy. So here we are, sign number four. We have a Lamb leading worship. But not the clumsy counterfeit Lamb. The true capital L Lamb. The one who we previously met standing at the center of the throne. In other words, it's Jesus Christ himself. This is the one that Satan failed to snatch and kill at his birth, but now he has ascended and is leading worship for the people of God. And just like a few chapters before, the 144,000 people there gathered for worship is a picture of the completeness of the people of God, that God's not going to leave anyone out who he's called. But then he hears, when he hears the singing, it sounds like it's coming from a multitude so loud it's like rushing water and thunder. And so there you have that image again, the completeness of God represented by 144,000, but the vast multitude of people that are called by his name, pictured by the sound of their singing. In verse one, then I looked and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and the father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. Oh, and by the way, now you know where that image of people in heaven holding harps comes from. It comes from there. And again, just as quickly as before, caught up into this amazing scene of worship led by the Lamb, but then the camera cuts again to the next sign. And now we're on sign number five, and it's three preaching angels. Um, and they're preaching three different sermons. The first one preaches the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. The second proclaims God's judgment against the wicked and evil. And the third warns about following either of the beasts and instead calls for patient endurance to remain faithful to Christ. Now, remember I said earlier that one of these signs is happening right in this moment. Do you remember that? Remember in these verses, we're looking at it from heaven's perspective, but right now, as I preach these words to you, the sign of the preaching angels is happening. That's super meta. A sign from heaven is literally happening right now as I preach these words to you. And in just a few minutes, and just a few minutes ago, when we stood and when we stand to sing in worship of Christ, the sign of the Lamb leading worship is happening. We're actually caught up in these signs. And so these two signs, the lamb leading worship and the preaching angels, they then stand in contrast to the work of the two beasts, all of which is happening in the present. So think about it. Think about it. Coming up from out of the sea and up from out of the earth are two beasts intent on overpowering and deceiving humanity in order to turn humankind away from worshiping Christ. But... In contrast, coming down out of heaven is a chorus of worship for Christ and a proclamation of the truth about Christ. You see the contrast. 
And I, you know, from Earth's perspective, one actually looks really powerful and effective, and the other looks weak and ineffective. But from Heaven's perspective, it's the other way around. We're going to come back to that too. So that's what's happening in the present, now into the drama of the future. And I'm only going to touch on these very briefly. Um, in the future, there are two signs. The first is of a great harvest, where those who are in Christ are taken up with him, and those who reject Christ are piled up and pressed like a wine press. And once again, the drama of this sign, this sign is heightened and it's powerful. It's these vivid pictures. And then the final sign in the future is of seven angels being given seven bulls filled with the wrath of God for earth and humankind. Um, and this seventh sign is actually the introduction to the last set of seven, um, the seven bulls, which Clint is going to lead us through next week. And so there you have it, the great drama of the seven signs of Revelation. And they're there to grab your attention. It's meant to be vivid. You're meant to ask questions. You're meant to look at it and say, what is happening here? So that you sit up and take notice. But ultimately, they're here to help us know how to live in the here and now. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, who she was actually, she was a novelist, but a Christian. And uh, she wrote an essay called The Greatest Drama Ever Staged. And she said this in it. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. The plot pivots upon a single character, and the whole action is the answer to a single central problem, what think ye of Christ? And that's where I want to finish today with two implications for our lives from these extremely vivid and dramatic chapters of Revelation. So you can't walk away from these chapters without considering the single character upon which the entire plot of history pivots and ask the question, what think ye of Christ? And so two implications. Um, and they're meant to help answer that question. The first one has to do with Satan's strategy in the world today, where his goal is for you to think nothing of Christ. Whereas our second implication has to do with Christ's strategy in the world today, where his goal is for you to think everything of Christ. And the first implication of all this is, is this. Satan would see you overpowered and deceived. He would see you overpowered and deceived. Back in chapter 12, the dragon fails to capture the radiant woman uh, after he fails to capture her, it says this in verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. In other words, he's waging war against Christians. He's waging war against the church. And his primary war strategy is to overpower and deceive in order to turn as many away from worshiping Christ as possible. And remember how he does that. He calls, remember, he calls the sea monster, the creepy leopard bear lion thing. And in chapter 13, he gives it power. In 13, verse 1, it says that this first beast has ten horns, and horns all through the Old Testament symbolize power. And not only that, but it says that he has ten crowns on its ten horns, and a crown symbolizes authority all through the Old Testament, which means along with its power comes authority. And its goal, what does it say its goal? Is worship. It says in verse 8 that all the inhabitants of the earth who don't worship Christ end up worshiping the beast. 
And then the second beast, the clumsy counterfeit lamb, comes along to deceive people into worshiping the first. Now, we've been saying that all this happens in the present. So where is the sea monster? Where is the clumsy lamb? How do you spot it as you walk out of here today? Well, they're anywhere and in any message that keeps you from worshiping Christ. That's where they are. They are working through the political campaign that says, put your trust, put your hope in this man or this woman and he'll fix your nation. They're working through the ads on social media that say, buy this and your life will finally be sorted out. They're at work anywhere that is attempting to separate earth from heaven. To reduce reality to a flat, one-dimensional reality that says this is all there is. All, only what you see is what there is. They're at work in any thought, message, teaching that you are the most important person and that you must come before anyone else. It's everywhere. And so when the New Testament speaks of the powers or uh, in Ephesians, it talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is what it's speaking about. That there are forces at work in our society causing anyone to turn away from Christ and disconnect Christ. They're, they're there. They, they, they actually they want you to disconnect Christ from morality, from virtue, to say that morality and virtue just comes from within. Where you hear that message, that's the beasts at work. Um, Maybe this is a little dense, but German theologian uh, Hendrik Burkhoff, uh, he was a student in Germany in the 1930s as Hitler was coming to power. Um, and uh, speaking of the momentum of Nazism in the 1930s, he said this. He said, no one could withhold himself without utmost effort from the grasp these powers had on men's inner and outer life. They acted as if they were ultimate values, calling for loyalty as if they were the gods of the cosmos. And so anywhere where you see the culture sweeping you towards a particular way of thinking, a particular ideology, this is the beast at work. And this is him reflecting on it. But did you hear the powers at work there? There's no sea monster. He doesn't talk about a, a monster that came out of the sea. There's no clumsy lamb there. That would be too obvious. No, the powers were at work behind a certain, well, behind a curtain. Burkhoff, reflecting on this 40 years later in the 1970s, wrote this uh, to keep the next generation from thinking they were somehow Im now immune from falling into the same trap of the devil, right? We lived through that. Well, of course, we'll never fall into that again, right? Here's what he said. He says, uh, nor should it be difficult for us to perceive today in every realm of life these powers which unify men yet separate them from God. Separating earth from heaven. The state, politics, class, social struggle, national interest, public opinion, accepted morality, the ideas of decency, humanity, democracy, these give unity and direction to many lives Yet precisely by giving unity and direction, they separate these many lives from the true God. They let us believe that we have found the meaning of existence, whereas the reality, they, they, sorry, whereas they really estrange us from true meaning. 
And so this is the implication from what's happening in the present. That Satan would have you overpowered and deceived. And the way he goes about it is in a way that you wouldn't even notice. It's just part of the culture. It's just part of the way things are. And you won't notice unless you're paying attention. So what does John say we should do? Well, in chapter 13, verse 18, he very simply says this. He says, this calls for wisdom. In other words, consider everything that is said by the politician. Everything that is presented to you in the media. Consider everything that is made to be normal in the films and shows that you binge. Consider everything that has influence on you and ask if the worldview that is presented to you exalts Christ in some way. And if it doesn't, that's the work of the beasts. That's them attempting to succeed in overpowering you and deceiving you to worship the enormous red dragon and his beast instead of Christ. But of course, it's, it's not like you're picturing a dragon. It's not like you're picturing a beast, but what they've done is they've succeeded in taking your attention off of Christ. So that's the first implication. But those aren't the only voices calling out. The second implication of Revelation 12 to 15 is that Christ would see you empowered and enlightened. And so if the beasts are attempting to overpower and deceive, then Christ and his angels are seeking to empower and enlighten. But look where the empowerment comes from. In chapter 14, it comes in the form of worship. Christ, the true lamb, is leading worship. And remember that sound in verse 2. It was, he heard the sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard, he says, was like that of harpists playing their harps. And, verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. And so what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're worshiping the lamb who, as we saw before, is the lamb who was slain. The lamb who died to take the sins of the world. The lamb who intentionally gave up his life for the sake of others. They're worshiping him. Now, how on earth does worship counter these terrifying, powerful beasts and their master, the enormous dragon? I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, he was saying to me, you know, I've got these friends that they don't know Christ, but I, and I want them to, but, you know, the things that they're involved in, if I say to them, well, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have forgiveness and live with him for eternity, he's like, it sounds so, like weak and silly compared to what they're doing. And this is happening here. The, the images of the dragon and the beast, they seem so powerful. How can something like singing empower you to resist their power? Because theirs seems terrifying, it seems ultimate. Well, worship does three things. First thing it does is it fortifies your own heart to the truth that Jesus Christ is exalted to the highest place. That at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so speaking truths um, 
and singing truths about Christ, it actually fortifies that truth in your own heart. The more that you do that, the more that truth is fortified in your own heart. Because listen, your heart is the true battleground. It always seems like the battleground is out there in the political arena, in the arena of culture and education and entertainment, but the true battleground is in hearts and minds. And so the first thing that worship does is it fortifies your heart, your own heart. The second thing it does is it fortifies the hearts of others. And so when you sing loudly and boldly, when you speak the words of the creeds out loud with others in church, you're actually fortifying the hearts of those around you. The New Testament calls this encouragement. And think about it. Encourage. Literally means to give courage. And so the second thing worship does is it gives courage. In other words, it fortifies the hearts of others when you worship. And then thirdly, and I don't fully understand how this works, but when we worship, the picture we get here is that we are backing up the leadership of heaven. We are, in a sense, fortifying the leadership of Christ who is actively at work to bring his kingdom here on earth. Now, if none of those three things convince you that you should worship, let me just put it like this. If worship isn't a waste of time for Christ the Lamb when all this is going on, then it's not a waste of time for you. But remember what else is happening in the present. There are three angels preaching. In other words, in contrast to the the deception of the clumsy lamb beast, there are angels proclaiming truth. They're there enlightening God's people. And so opening, opening this book of Revelation and reading it, it's an act of receiving truth. And at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to establish some sort of job security, <laughs> the preaching of the word of God is essential in our lives, in our present daily lives. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is a great author and pastor for many years, he says that preaching is meant for God's word to resonate in our ears so that we deal with God, not as a memory, but as immediately and personally speaking to us. And so the second implication from the present is that Christ empowers us through worship And he enlightens us with truth. And the crazy thing is, he does it through such like weak, ordinary means. He does it through a group of people gathering in old buildings, singing songs and reciting scripture and creeds out loud with one another. He does it through imperfect, weak preachers. And when you take that and then you put that up against, you know, the image of an enormous red dragon and two scary beasts that come out of the sea and the land and and how they have power and authority and the ability to communicate a deceptive message to everyone in the world. When you put a few of us gathering in an old building to sing and to hear preaching, it just seems so weak and insignificant, doesn't it? But weak as it may seem, 
Think of the millions and millions and millions of men and women all over the world today who have gathered together to join in worship of the Lamb. Who have sat to hear the preaching of the word. And when you put it in those terms, it doesn't sound so weak anymore, does it? Well, we've got to wrap this up. So if you've been paying attention at all, well, now the lights are on. I flipped the light switch on for you, and I'm sorry. You've seen behind the curtain. You've seen how it all works. You now know that every message we receive from the media, from politicians, from influencers, is some way crafted by the enormous red dragon and his two beasts. They're in there somewhere. But you've also seen that Christ is on his throne leading worship. And his angels are preaching truth. And ultimately, the call in these verses, it's found in chapter 13, verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And isn't that what we've been talking about as a church for a long time now? Planting seeds, patient, faithful, day by day, step of obedience, step of obedience, step of obedience, over and over and over again. And so even though it's like grandiose and vivid and hard to get our heads around, at the end of the day, John summarizes it in such simple, ordinary means. Worship Christ. Listen to his word being preached. Read it yourself. And then just go and plant a little seed of faithful, enduring obedience day by day by day. And that's how you overcome Let me pray. Um, Lord, we say thank you for this word. We join with the crowd in heaven who is singing worship. We, we receive the, the sign of the preaching of your angels in order that we would patiently endure in faithfulness. Amen.